episode 355 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our clients, our institutions, our uh, family, friends, pets, and maybe not even us three weeks from today. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Francis Fukuyama, who's co-author of the report of the Working Group on Platform Scale, which I thought was among the many reports about what's wrong with the internet today, one of the better ones I've read. So that'll be an interesting interview. But first, let's go to the news roundup because we've got a great and tech-heavy panel. Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council. Nate, great to have you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Okay, and Dmitry Alperovich, who's the co-founder and chairman of the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator. We just interviewed uh, Dmitry about that. Uh, Dmitry, great to have you on. Great to be back, Stuart. And uh, Nick Weaver, uh, crowd favorite uh, computer science uh, professor at UC Berkeley. Nick, good to have you. Lecture, remember, I'm paid to care about my students. Yes, that's right. That's right. You're right. The professors are off talking to each other instead. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. So let's get into something that's somewhere between tech uh, and policy, which is a really interesting story that suggested that Google's uh, uh, Project Zero team outed a a zero-day heavy Western government attack on counterterrorism target. And the strong suggestion in the story is that there was a debate inside Google about that, about whether, in fact, it's a good idea just to blow up a, such a heavily resourced effort to get at a terrorist group, uh, and whether Google has any special obligations when it encounters that kind of operation run by a Western democratic government, which is not named in the article and probably is not the United States, uh, but could easily be any other one of the five eyes. If I had to guess, I would have said GCHQ, but because finding all those zero days at once is not easy to do. Uh, so, Dimitri, how does this debate play into the vulnerabilities equity process that the government has. Uh, the government makes a decision about what to disclose and what not to disclose based on equities. It sounds as though Google kind of has a rump version of that going in the other direction. Well, I actually think that they erred on the right side of the debate here, which is the middle ground between not doing anything and disclosing everything, right? And they chose the middle ground where they reported the bugs to Apple. Apple issued an update to patch those vulnerabilities, but they didn't go into the details about the targeting. They didn't go into the details about the indicators involved in this stuff. So you can imagine that the terrorists that are still infected with those implants would remain infected as a result of very limited disclosure here, which is the right thing to do. I'm not overly concerned about Google in this particular case blowing some capability. It's not ideal, obviously, but, but it comes with a territory. And we have seen this happen in the past, you know, famously Stuxnet, of course, you know, an alleged Western operation against Iran was uh, blown by initially a Belarus security company, but then Symantec and others jumped in and provide a lot of detail about what has happened. You had Kaspersky that had blown a counterterrorism operation of the West as well. So it happens. 
and you learn to live with it, and it's just the cost of doing business when you're in the offensive game. But there's a, there is a difference between being the first to blow the whistle and being the second. It's a lot easier to be the second because the whistle's already been blown. Nick, do you think that Project Zero and some of these other Western folks have an obligation to consider the impact of announcing that they found a zero day? Yes, and that's why they actually had to announce it. Because the problem is not that whoever was using zero days to attack terrorists. It's that those zero days were discovered by Google, which means they could they were being used aggressively enough that others could have discovered them as well. But hadn't, right? So this, Google obviously has better insight than most people. Google has very good insight into things that are accessible on the internet. Mm-hmm. Because we're talking uh, watering hole attacks. So these are attacks where the uh, attacker takes over a website and compromises the website. And if Google is finding a watering hole attack, you have to assume that others are finding the watering hole attack and can be using it in a much more subtle manner. So for example, China can do a watering hole attack on any Chinese hosted unencrypted site without actually having to be a watering hole thanks to their network infrastructure. I presume Russia is able to do the same. So Google, once they discovered these exploits in the wild, had to go, who else knows? And they do not have any visibility into who else knows. And they're going to have to assume that other bad actors are going to find this. And so well, maybe, they, you know, they, couldn't they go to NSA and say, who else knows this? Uh, you should be t- looking for this too. Uh, we- NSA missed solar winds. Well, sure. I, but that wasn't a that was not a watering hole attack either. No, but NS, but that's an example of attacker behavior. So if Google goes to NSA, NSA would tell them anyway, even if the NSA knows, because that would compromise sources and methods. The NSA would know about it if they had either seen it being used by a third party right. or had compromised the third party's infrastructure. And either way, the NSA will not reveal that to Google because that compromises sources and methods. Nick, I slightly disagree with you because, frankly, when it comes to crawling the web, no one has the capabilities of Google, right? This is something they, they've perfected over 20 years, and almost no one can, can match that. Maybe Bing, maybe a couple others, but very few. I think a much bigger issue here is being accused of hypocrisy, right? So when they're blowing a Chinese operation against the Uyghurs, for example, and the Chinese government complains to them, they can say, well, we don't play favorites. We're going to do this to any government. And you want to be in that position as a private company where you don't want to be seen as playing favorites, particularly with China that can hammer you hard. And certainly with Europe and others, you have to show that you are sort of an equal opportunity offender, if you will, and you're going to blow anything offensive that you see. And that's a position that not just Google, but many security companies are taking, where if we see malicious code, we're going to block it, we're going to report it. Where you do see nuances is how public you want to be about that operation. Clearly, in this particular case, Google was concerned about blowing active counterterrorism operations, and that's why you don't see them disclosing any of the details behind those attacks, not what the sites were, not the details of the malware, 
and that really would have impacted the operations in a pretty severe way. Very good so. point. And we saw that elsewhere with, for example, the NSO group's use of WhatsApp, that WhatsApp reported to the targets only if the targets were not also subject to a wiretap or pen register or similar order in order to not disrupt criminal investigations. So I, I do think they are still hypocritical. The, the, most of these companies are supporting the idea that the intelligence community has to consider the cybersecurity implications of using zero days, no matter how important the intelligence they collect from it. And I think they need to consider the intelligence consequences of blowing zero-day operations. And one, one thing I like about this is there's been all this effort to say we ought to turn the vulnerability equities process into a mandatory legislative process. If I were at NSA today, I'd say, well, we've got an amendment that says uh, we have to – if we have to – conduct an equities process, so do companies that find zero days. And they need to come to talk to us and say, we're not screwing up an important intelligence operation here, are we? Uh, just so that there is a fair consideration of both intelligence and cybersecurity in all of the disclosures. That yeah, don't probably you run won't into pass, but it will keep the VEP mandatory legislation on hold for a long time. Don't you run into First Amendment issues with that? Yeah, probably so. Well, let's see. Can I solve that? Not, not immediately. Although I think you could say uh, that the disclosure, the fact of disclosure when it has the effect of compromising a classified operation, which in many cases it would be, is something that probably the government could regulate as a matter of speech because there's a whole bunch of current law that tries to regulate disclosure of secrets, including the secrets that are not classified in a few cases. All right. Uh, well, we did. We talked about uh, solar winds really briefly. I want to go back to this. What I thought was a little bit odd, and, and it's a strain of analysis uh, that we hear from the government. I was wondering where it was coming from, and it looks as though it's coming from NSA Director Nakasone, in which he said the problem with solar winds is. It found a blind spot because a lot of the distribution of the malware was using U.S. infrastructure. And, of course, we're in a foreign intelligence operation, so we can't look at what's happening inside the United States. I, I kind of found that either scary or unpersuasive. And, Dimitri, do you understand what he's telling us and what the implications of that line of analysis are? Uh, I do, and, and it is a real issue. I don't necessarily agree with the proposals for how to fix it, although I want to be clear that Nakasone is not arguing, at least he didn't in the Senate testimony, to give more powers to NSA, but there are some former NSAers, including your folks that have followed in your footsteps as general counsel at NSA that have been very aggressive about granting NSA ability to surveil domestic infrastructure. But here's a real problem. So. In both SolarWinds, as, as well as the exchange hacks, you've had adversaries take advantage of this, and we've seen this in past cases as well, where they know that if they set up their command and control infrastructure in the U.S., primarily on the U.S. cloud providers, the ability of the U.S. government to get timely access to that is very limited. As you well know, Stuart, FISA process is neither fast nor easy, and one of the things that FISA requires, by the way, which is a little bit of a chicken and egg problem in some cases, is that you have to basically show to court that this is a foreign intelligence operation, right? That's why it goes under FISA. And if you don't know that, because to know that you may need to get access to the server, 
it's a chicken and egg problem and, and you run into those issues. So it, it, it is a blind spot, not necessarily on the detection side, which is where most people assume that problem exists. It's actually on the investigative side. Once you're tipped off that there's something going on with the servers on Microsoft or AWS Cloud, you wanna get access to that in a timely fashion. You wanna understand who the victims are so you can tip off the FBI to notify them. And that process is very slow and cumbersome. So the right solution in my view is actually not to enable NSA to surveil it, which obviously runs into all kinds of civil liberties concerns, but to actually get the adversaries moved off of that infrastructure. And the way to do that was actually discovered by the Trump administration literally on the last day of the administration, they issued an executive order requiring the Commerce Department to put out rules for cloud providers to do KYC or know your customer on, on, on their customers so that you can validate is this truly SVR that's buying this Amazon account or Microsoft account, or is this a legitimate business in Europe or elsewhere? And I think that is the right solution. We're, we're gonna see commerce come out with those regulations probably in the next 90 days or so, and hopefully that will fix this problem. Okay, so that's one solution. I, Nate, you were familiar with the domestic rules for, for wiretaps. We used to have this problem with burner phones and with people moving quickly from one phone to the other. And we said, how, how can we possibly track these people? And then we got legislation that says, yes, you can identify people and you can identify a pattern of use that allows you to say, this is the same guy that I already got the order on and now I wanna go jump on his new phone and the next phone and the next phone and the next phone. Uh, it, it does seem to me that you could probably write legislation that fit the Russian behavior in solar winds and the effort to abuse these domestic authorities that would allow you to quickly pivot it just as quickly as they can pivot to do a uh, a warrant to to review what they're spewing out yeah i think that's right i mean look they have a few options here you know dimitri's right the know your customer thing is is something that you know people are are focusing on as a way to try to push people out of these networks, these domestic networks. And I think that has you know, some significant limitations. A lot of companies who are in this space would argue they're doing much of that already, and it's not, frankly, helping all that much. Focusing on the, the foreign side, where NSA has the most freedom of action, has its own limits. You know, Being able to detect this kind of thing and know what it is, where it came from, and how they got it is pretty tough when you're looking out there. And so I think there are advantages to, to focusing on domestic. I think you're right, Stuart, you could write legislation. I, I think they probably have room in existing authorities to be a little more aggressive than they have been historically. Yep. And there's probably, you know, as, as General Hayden used to say, to to get more chalk on their spikes, so to speak, and work a little closer to the boundaries. This is not the FBI's strong suit, right? Having nimble technology as opposed to blanketing the field with agents. Yeah. Uh, they'd rather have agents than technology most of the time. And this is one that really requires some technical sophistication to identify the patterns that you need. And, and that's just not what they think of first. Uh, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead, I, Nick. I thought oh. Nick was offering to get involved. Yeah, but I think this says that the real weakness is the FBI just needs to be able to hire more geeks. Yeah, and build a completely different infrastructure for investigations of this kind, which is not so easy. 
Well, I th- I think that's there's a little bit of something to that, but you know the FBI is the face of this with the FISA court. They're not always the ones investigating behind those applications, and so so you know I think we do need to figure out who should be on point for doing this and make sure that they're focusing on this kind of stuff and sufficiently resourced. And if that needs to be NSA, you know, FBI they can, can build remain it and, the and, and, front and face. Put them, yeah, put but themselves I, at I, the disposal of the I, FBI. Right. And I, But I think what part of what's going on here, I'm skeptical that you're going to see proposed legislation out of the Biden administration on this. I think you're going to, I think this is about two things. One is, you know, um, setting them up to be a little bit more aggressive with their existing authorities mm-hmm. and pushing the the limits on that a little bit more. And the second thing is, you know, pushing back on, on the comment Nick made earlier, and I don't know if he was just being flippant, but, you know, I think they feel like they're under siege a little bit after solar winds. And this is a little bit about saying, look, <laughs> we have <laughs> limits here. Yes. If you want those limits imposed on us, you know what? That's your problem. You know, yes. we're doing the best we can. And if, you know, the next time something like this happens, they'll say, look, I told you so. You may not want to change right. these things. We may not either. But, you know, and it's about shifting some of that burden back onto the private sector and saying, look, there, if there's a failure here, it's on them more than it is on us. If the government tries to get more aggressive, they're going to run into judicial resistance that is sort of spreading from the Supreme Court's willingness to, to, to say, well, maybe cell phones are just different. Now it turns out maybe just cameras are just different. The First Circuit had a long, you know, there's only five just judges, I think, in an unbanked, but they had a long argument about uh, whether if you put a camera on a pole and observe open public activities on the street and on in the yard of the target, whether, you know, leaving it up for eight months is just too creepy to for the Constitution to allow. Yeah, you know, the oral argument went a little more than twice as long as people expected it to. You know, the, the traditional answer courts have given on that has been, no, it's not an invasion of your reasonable expectation of privacy. The law enforcement doesn't need a warrant because it's happening out in the public and anybody can see it. But, you know, in light of, you know, what's a becoming a longer line of Supreme Court cases, this question is being asked when when police investigative capabilities are enhanced by technology in some way, you know, going all the way back to the Kilo case with the thermal imaging readers pointed at, at the house to to identify people who are growing marijuana in, in their garage or in their living room. The courts have started to look at this, and some of those cases like Kilo have been a little bit easier, you know, where they are looking directly inside a house effectively and using technology to, to do that, even if the heat's emanating from there. But there, you know, these cases where you put a camera on a pole it's really hard to figure out what's different and where that line should be drawn, you know, when it crosses the line and puts law enforcement back into a situation where these defendants have a reasonable expectation of privacy and they need to get a warrant. And if it, if the court draws too slippery of a line, then it, you know, it, it starts to beg the question about 24 seven surveillance and, you know, taking photos and videos from a van parked outside their house you know, where do you draw that line and how do you make it bright enough so that the police can understand it and abide by it? And I think that's what you saw the court grappling with a little bit in this oral argument 
it made them, the duration of this made them feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I think they seem to be struggling, in my opinion, with exactly how and where to draw that line and say it, they went a little too far. Maybe it's the Amazon rule. If you, if the police don't have to pee in bottles, uh, then it is, it's <laughs> presumptively permissible. But since the cameras don't have to pee in bottles, they have to be subjected to additional scrutiny. But, but Stuart, what is your issue with KYC for cloud? You have to do KYC anytime you do transaction over $10,000 in our financial system. Why not require it when you're procuring infrastructure that you can use to attack government networks and yeah. other private sector networks? I'm not opposed to that idea. I think it's actually uh, worth pursuing. I wonder whether it'll work as you – know, look, KYC – doesn't work great if, these days for banks. It is both – it misses stuff. If you're clever, you can get around it. And it it catches a lot of stuff that it shouldn't be catching. You know, if the FBI goes in and serves a subpoena with your name on it on a bank, you're toast at that bank. Uh, and if they read your name, if they do a clips, a Google search on you, and there's something – if somebody has said something mean about you, you're in – trouble. So the KYC stuff has produced a lot of overcautious banking. Are we really going to say, no, you can't use the cloud because we don't like what your, the Google search says about you? you know, I, it's all about if you're going to get a cloud server, then you have to send in your passport. You have to send in your corporate documents. And by the way, when it comes to intelligence agencies setting up shell companies, procuring infrastructure, that's very, very expensive to do, very difficult. And the more of that that you can burn upstream, yep. the harder you'll make it for them to procure that type of infrastructure going forward. So in a way, if you make it super hard for them to do business in the United States and you get them to move overseas, that's exactly what you want to do because then NSA has free reign. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually, it used to be that the safest place to, to disguise your identity when setting up a corporation was the United States. So we had malmowed everybody else into adopting KYC rules, but we hadn't adopted them here. But we now have done that, and it will be very expensive to hide your identity in creating an LLC. Nick? I think the bigger problem with KYC on cloud is more scale, that with KYC on banking, you can set it fairly high. It's a fairly high bar of transaction. But for attacker resources, a single Amazon EC2 micro instance might be all they're using. And so that's something down in the random high school student range of budget. Yeah. And so scaling that's a, that's a KYC down to that point has some issues. But you do it on account opening, not on what they use, right? To, to, yeah, to do anything on Amazon, you have to create an account. At that time, you require all this documentation for them to prove who they are. And the thing is that threshold is going to be so low because there's so many mice. There's so many mice on Amazon that like every student, I've got three different EC2 accounts for three different purposes. One is burning $10 a month because that's all it is. And, and on the whole, that's a, it's a good thing that, that cloud computing is that cheap. Dimitri, uh, you're really saying, yeah, but it ought to cost at least $1,000 to open an account. No, I'm saying it, it, uh, it needs to cost you as much as it costs you to upload your passport copy. If you have a passport, right? If you're 11, you'd probably don't have a passport. If you're an American, 
half of two thirds of America doesn't have passports or a driver's license. You, you know yep. what I mean? Yeah. Okay. I look. It's it. It that does Upload show why your this driver's is hard. license may introduce you to this thing called Photoshop. Those KYC protections for remote operations tend to have been very brittle. And you can see with all the Bitcoin exchange KYC business where people just upload crap because the vendor doesn't actually really want to do it. All right, let's move on to Facebook taking down an, an attack on a bunch of Uyghurs using Facebook infrastructure. It appears that it's a Chinese government operation that was taken down. Of course, China doesn't allow Facebook. So this is them saying, we want to play in your infrastructure, even though we won't allow you to provide the infrastructure to most of our citizens. Dimitri, anything notable about this? Is this just a, an indication that Facebook is never going to get into China and they've started to accommodate to that? Well, that's only one indication. But the other interesting thing about this is that they've named two contractors, the Beijing Best United Technology Company and the Dalian Nine Rust Tech Company that have contributed to developing the Android tools that were used in this attack. And once again, we see how the Chinese have created an ecosystem of contractors, in some ways not any different than what we have here in the Beltway, where you have a lot of belt, Beltway bandits that are doing a lot of this work for the government. And this is a, a perfect pressure point and something that the U.S. government should really look harder into, these companies are influenced because many of them are not just building offensive tools for the government, they want to do business more broadly. A lot of the people that are working for them are not working out of any patriotic motivation, but are there just to make money and someday may want to start a company, may want to travel. And when you sanction them, when you indict them, that's when you really see activity drop off significantly. You don't really see that for government opera operators those working for the Ministry of State Security, the PLA, but for the contractors in China, you do. So yet another point that while naming and shaming governments doesn't work, naming and shaming contractors and in particular indicting them can have a big effect. Well, and turning them into specially designated nationals and entities for purposes of export controls, uh, they're small enough. That's a pretty significant thing and one that the U.S. government can probably pull off over and over again. Nick, anything to add to that? It's also very interesting to see the contrast with what Google did on the case we were talking about beginning. Yep. Google basically burned the zero days but said nothing about targeting. This Facebook is going all in on naming and shaming and identifying the operation because, well, Let's remind the Chinese government of the Streisand effect. Every time they go after Uyghurs, let's remind them that they are conducting a genocide. Yeah, you know, the, the Uyghur issue has real appeal inside China, surprisingly. And so even companies that have mildly criticized it, that have Chinese operations, have suffered at the hands of Chinese consumers for having criticized the government's Uyghur policy. It's an indication, I think, that uh, decoupling is inevitable and sought remarkably by both sides in this, this new world. I, I, I want to I, I ask Dimitri about another policy issue, uh, and this is 
DHS. This is, I guess, we're exploring all of the solar winds excuses of, of government. DHS's uh, CISA leader, Brandon Wales, said solar winds shows the limits and pretty significant limits of pri- public-private collaboration. I, I didn't quite get what he was trying to argue there, and maybe you do. So, so there's been one big issue that, that has been highlighted in the SolarWinds attack, and that is when Microsoft and other providers have identified government agencies that have been targeted, and CISA has requested that information, the companies have hid behind NDAs saying, well, CISA, we can't tell you the Treasury Department was compromised because we have an NDA with Treasury. That seems to me a very ridiculous position to take because I don't see any situation in which the Treasury Department would take them to court for disclosing information to another government agency, but it has been it has prevented the government from getting a full sense of what is actually going on in terms of the impact of solar winds on U.S. government and slowed down response. So that's something I know the White House is looking hard at. How do we fix that? That's both fixable and it's an example. I mean, we started in a world where every agency bought its own computer gear and had its own chief technologist and chief information security person. And that's never that hasn't been the case in the corporate world for 20 years. But government is slow to give up budget and control. This is one more example where the fact that there are so many different agencies who think they're responsible for their own cybersecurity and that a CISA should just butt out is not really adaptive. That's right. I will give a plug to CISA because one of the things that they've done in the last few months that I think has been tremendous has released a bunch of open source tools, Sparrow and Chirp in, in particular, that allows companies and, and others to scan their networks for indicators of compromise that CISA is releasing and keeping up to date. And those are the types of things that you want to see from CISA, and I'm glad that they're stepping up to do, uh, yeah. to do these things. Why don't we do a little roundup on decoupling because we we could do this every week and maybe we will. But this is the week, the last week was when Tony Blinken and others, Jake Sullivan, I think, uh, came back from Alaska having had one of the ugliest exchanges with competitor nation that we've had in a while. Maybe the kitchen debate rivaled it, but it was very blunt on both sides. And not surprisingly, nobody expects the relationship to get better. I don't know what more to say about that. Cybersecurity is just one piece of a situation in which the Chinese feel like they're winning or will win and that they don't have to pretend to like us or to like our values. And we're offended enough by that clarity to to take action to defend our values. I think we've got four rocky years, maybe 20 rocky years ahead. Dimitri? Well, I, I have two comments to make. One, the tone that the Chinese took with us on our soul was insulting. And if I were Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, I would have got up, gotten up and left. because At I about was... five minutes into the two-minute remarks, right? <laughs> exactly. But there was one comment that I actually really liked, which is that when the Chinese called us the champions of cyber attacks, and I think that was a nice compliment because the reality is that we are the champions. We have better offensive capability than anyone else. And it was nice that they recognized that. Yeah, yeah, Q Queen. We, okay. Uh, although I, I wonder how much of that championship team 
is devoted to satisfying the lawyers. The the discussion about Google blowing those zero days was full of statements to the effect that you can always tell a Western intelligence cyber uh, operation because it was written for the lawyers. And I... You know, that's nice, uh, and it does reflect our values, but those are people who are not thinking of new ways to attack, but thinking of new ways to limit our attacks. And the real problem is the lack of creativity in our offensive operations, that we have, from a technical perspective, enormous capabilities that far exceed what any of our adversaries have, but our ability to use them in creative ways, in the ways that our adversaries are using them against us, is highly, highly limited. Lawyers obviously play a role, but I think we, we also suffer from a lack of imagination. So speaking as a former government lawyer, no lawyer has ever told a, a client in government who was determined to do something that he couldn't possibly do it. You only get, allow the, the lawyers to tell you not to do something when you don't really want to do it anyway. Isn't that true, Nate? <laughs> there's, just, there's some truth in that for sure. Well, okay. and, and also we can't sort of absolve from responsibility the leaders of these agencies. I know in the Trump administration, one particular head of an agency, whenever he would hear the answer no from a lawyer, would literally ask, is anyone going to go to jail? No, then we're doing it. And I think some awareness of risk and, and whether you know, something is just not appropriate because of regulation or is actually illegal and should not be done is, is something that more government authorities should be thinking about. I was uh, The nice thing about being head of policy at DHS is that I wasn't the lawyer anymore and I could push the lawyers a little. And I, I remember once that I, I got a statement back from uh, the general counsel on a topic and I said, well, that's probably pretty good law, but it's not exactly heroic. And then I sent him uh, the MP3 of holding out for a hero to, to play at his next uh, staff meeting. Stuart, one thing about the Alaska talks, just to sort of point out, because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about next, I think, is that, you know, and I think they deserve some credit for this, and, and it's probably why they stuck around and endured some of the abuse that they got. You know, the Biden administration is clearly trying to build an international coalition of some sort to confront China on a whole host of these issues. And it's evident from some of the travel that took place around the Alaska talks. And I think it's also why you saw them really driving home some of the messages they were driving home, you know, less about, you know, American trade deficits, less about, you know, America first and less about you know, maintaining U.S. dominance of technology and was trying to define the conflict between the U.S. and China in terms that will hopefully animate some of our allies to to take our side. And I suspect, you know, behind closed doors, they're pretty clear-eyed about just how challenging it's going to be to rally those forces. But But I think, you know, they're giving it their best effort and deserve some credit for that. Yep, I, I agree. And it was not a message that the Trump's Trumpistas could deliver credibly. Dimitri? Well, one, one thing that puzzles me, though, is what was the point of that meeting anyway? Does anyone actually think that the Chinese are going to give us any help whatsoever on North Korea, on Iran, or even, frankly, on climate change, that they've tanked any trade negotiations on environmental issues for years because they, they continue to pursue mercantilist policies? So yeah, this so idea I, I, that we're going to get their help on anything is just ridiculous. No, but they had to have the meeting and, and having it in that informal way with less press coverage than you'd get and less expectation from, say, a summit meeting. Uh, they, they've had it 
Everybody now knows it, and it's hard to characterize it as a black eye for the Biden administration because they didn't exactly hype the meeting. It was, you know, hey, I'm stopping over in Anchorage. Maybe you can too. Uh, and that's probably the best press they're going to get out of it. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, Nate, you, there is this bill that's pending that's designed to create a $5 billion fund. Of course, it doesn't create it. It just says there's going to be one for joint research with other democratic nations on some of these critical technologies. That sounds like the right direction, not enough zeros. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, two things are important here. One is, you know, this legislation is further evidence that that this conflict between the U.S. and China is one of the lone remaining bipartisan issues of foreign and, and probably domestic policy as well. And, you know, hopefully people will take advantage of that and, and use it for some good. And the the second thing is, as I said, you know, there, I think the Biden administration and clearly some in Congress have an interest in trying to build an international coalition of like-minded democracies to to put pressure on China to change some of its behavior, and you know, this kind of fund, which which uh, you know tries to send the message that they're looking to, you know, get the tide to rise all boats here, not just American boats, is an important message to send to those allies and to put money, real money behind it, I think has real value in attracting people to this, you know, $5 billion at the end of the day isn't a ton of money, even though it is to to each of us individually, you know, for building a coalition like this, it's going to need a lot more funding. And as you said, this is just an authorization legislation, then you've got to actually squeeze that money out of the appropriators at the end of the day. So there's a kind of interesting sectoral difference on decoupling. It's quite clear, and the FCC, again, has picked on picked up a couple of more Chinese telecom companies that they're going to uh, oust from the U.S. market. That's easy pickings. At the same time that the financial sector seems ever more enthusiastic about uh, integrating into China, and the Chinese government seems to be opening the door wider to companies like Goldman Sachs and allowing them to open wholly owned subsidiaries. Uh, it's Is it sustainable to have an integrated set of financial players and a completely separate telecom and uh, internet economy? It is not, and the reality is that one of the reasons the Chinese are relaxing some of their regulations on this issue is because they don't want companies to pull out of Hong Kong at the time when they're basically incorporating Hong Kong into the mainland system. And if they can show that uh, not only did they not lose any major investors from Wall Street, but they actually doubled down on Hong Kong, that is just going to embolden them further domestically to go after domestic dissidents and maybe perhaps even set up a future confrontation with Taiwan. So it's something that is not acceptable. It's something that the Biden administration is going to have to confront. And the Trump administration was always challenged by sort of kowtowing to Wall Street. The Mnuchin, of course, was a product yep. of Wall Street and, and very close to a lot of these CEOs. The Biden administration has no love loss for Wall Street for a number of reasons. So I think their influence is going to be much more limited. All right. So quickly, or maybe not so quickly, I am open to the idea of taking 
episode one of the Cyber Law podcast and turning it into a non-fungible, tradable item, uh, Nifty. But it turns out that it, Nifty's, among other things, are mostly a mechanism for making sure everybody buys some just to get on the chain. And so I'll, I'll make this offer on the podcast. If you send us 150 bucks to buy the Ethereum, we will create and give you the NFT of episode one of the CyberLaw podcast. So anybody who who wants uh, to participate in that experiment, feel free. Nick is going to tell us why we shouldn't. So let's actually consider both what these things are in theory and what they are in practice. In theory, a non-fungible token is supposed to be an ownership record. The problem is we've known how to do these for decades. So if I want to sell you, Stuart, this lovely bridge in Brooklyn, we get together, we write up a contract, you sign it, I sign it, you give me the money. That's the whole point theoretically behind a non-fungible token. It's just an ownership record, which we've known how to do for decades. The problem is the cryptocurrency bros got it exactly wrong on what you want to do. So in the nifty world, if it turns out I didn't actually have the rights to that bridge, um, sorry, you're out of luck rather than uh, we go to court. Likewise, in the nifty world, say you do own that bridge legitimately and somebody steals your uh, keys, they now own the bridge. That's not exactly what we want in the real world. Actually, both of us now own it, right? And so it's a race to, to dispose of it. <laughs> yeah, and but that's what they are in theory. So even in theory, they're stupid. But in <laughs> practice, they're even worse because in practice, they aren't even ownership records. They are simply pointers to a web page. So for example, if you actually wanted to look at that truly awful non-arm's length uh, transaction Beeple piece of artwork, Mm -hmm. uh, the URL's around. It's just some long garbage string URL. And if you look at it, you can see all the cruddy artwork and all its glory high def detail. And so the you, can't, only... you just can't exclude. There, there's no exclusion authority that comes with ownership, which is there's no exclusion authority. There's actually do. even no ownership rights. Most NFTs do not convey any real ownership rights. They just convey the ability to send a pointer to a web page to somebody else, and now it's their pointer. It's total classic tulip mania, and it's a way of trying to hype up the cryptocurrency space yet again until the Fed DOJ finally takes out Tether and this whole thing goes away. Dimitri? I'll say this. I completely agree with Nick. NFTs are stupid, but let's be clear on what they actually do. As Nick said, they don't provide you ownership rights. They provide you bragging rights. And that's all it is. Well, there you go. Okay, so if you want to brag that you actually own uh, the first episode of the CyberLaw podcast, just feel free to to send us 150 bucks, and we'll we'll go through that process. Actually, uh, we'll do even better. We'll give you a piece of paper that has a receipt for the 150 dollars pointing to the URL. Because that's what the NFTs are anyway. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, well, I, I think that does sort of debunk the, the nifties. We'll see if they uh, survive this process. Uh, Nick, criminal gang, another criminal carding gang got doxxed. This is happening a lot. Uh, and 
I wonder if it's doing enough damage that we ought to find a way to reward people for doxing them. Maybe we could give them, you know, uh, bragging rights to ownership of the uh, the doxed files. Or just convince them that what they need to do is send it to Brian Krebs, because this actually happened several years ago when a couple of the Viagra gangs in Russia got mad at each other, hacked each other, dumped their databases to Brian Krebs, and... Yep. Brian Krebs and my research group that I was in and everybody else had lots of fun with that. It's terrific. It'll pay dividends for 10 years because people screw up, you know, when they're starting out, they screw up their security. And by the time they realize how good their security has to be, they've made mistakes that will be in the record forever if we can get these things doxed. Uh, seems like a great idea. Okay. There was a pretty good article in the MIT Technology Review. I, I say pretty good. It was an article about a guy in England who's a problem gambler who is trying to figure out what all the gambling apps know about him. And the theme of the story was they know so much about him that they can see he's a problem gambler and problem gamblers generate most of their revenue. The apps all said, oh no, we have special programs for problem uh, gamblers. but and, and frankly, there was not a lot of actual hard data there, but it still raises a serious question, especially with artificial intelligence, where you don't even know why the AI has chosen to send certain kinds of signals to certain kinds of users. And so you, you wouldn't even know that the AI is basically picking the most vulnerable 5% of the population and just ruining them. Nick, uh, uh, is there, I, I put aside the article, how big a problem is that? It's potentially huge. So a quip I use on AI is a great way to teach a computer to be a racist asshole, and some people like it that way. Doing this sort of targeting through an AI gives you plausible deniability when you go after the more vulnerable populations. And the, this is probably occurring all the time, it's just we don't see it in the U.S. because the U.S. doesn't have the European data disclosure laws that allowed this guy to go and find out from the gambling companies what they knew and what they were acting on. Yeah, yeah. but of course, if they used AI, uh, they could say, well, we use all these things, but we don't actually know how the uh, machine chose you, and we apologize, and we won't do it again, and then everybody else but him will get uh, stuck. All right, very quickly, we've already covered the accusation that Amazon is letting its workers pee in bottles. I tweeted on that. I said, if they didn't, it would be age discrimination, but uh, you guys are all too young to, to get that joke. I want to do one correction. Uh, I... I revived my Privacy Kills uh, bumper sticker in the context of the fact that Israel, which allowed Pfizer to get a lot of information about how its vaccines were working, got an advantage in terms of quick delivery and good prices that the Europeans couldn't get because of GDPR. That may still be true, but I don't want to leave the impression that the Israelis 
completely sold out their uh, population. They insist that what they gave Pfizer was de-identified aggregate data about the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I know if this were in the U.S., there would be a dozen data scientists saying that you can't really aggregate and de-identify the information. But uh, no, is- the data scientists will say you can if you're careful and you make sure you're using K anonymity sets and stuff like that. Right. So and for it- this, it might actually very well pass the paranoid data scientist scrutiny. Okay. All right. So uh, even more ch- uh, chops to the Israelis on privacy than I was willing to uh, give them. And finally, a uh, little bragging point. Peter Mochtiger, who's an NYU law student writing for the NYU Law Journal, sent me his draft of his article, and it cites the Cyber Law Podcast twice, which is twice as many times as we've been cited before in every law review um, ever published. We were cited once prior to this. So I, you know, uh, hats off to Peter Mochtiger. And that's the end of the news roundup. Uh, I want to thank all of you guys and turn to our interview with Francis Fukuyama, who is co-author of the report on the Working Group on Platform Scale. He's, he teaches at Stanford. He's got 100 named chairs and positions there that I'm not going to get into. We are going to be talking, however, about the, I thought, very good report of the Working Group on Platform Scale. So I really liked this report, uh, uh, as will become obvious uh, as we go forward. But let me uh, ask Professor Fukuyama, Frank? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, uh, You've been a public intellectual since I've read public intellectual, so it's a little daunting to, to talk to you in that way. But can you tell me, how did this report come about? Why did you and this group decide to write the report about platform scale? Well, I'm uh, the director at Stanford of something called the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. And we also created a new cyber policy center at the Freeman Spogli Institute, which is the interdisciplinary institute that I am a part of. And, you know, we worry about global democracy, which has been under a lot of stress uh, from all sorts of sources over the last few years. And one of them is the internet. The one aspect of policy that we hadn't been covering had really uh, been the antitrust one. And so about a little more than a year ago, I established within our larger project on democracy in the internet, what was first called the antitrust working group to review whether the scale of these big platforms, and basically you're just talking about Google and Facebook and and maybe Twitter, whether that was a real problem for democracy because historically concentrated economic power on that kind of scale has always been regarded as not necessarily compatible with democracy. So we began meeting. We can discuss who is a member of the group as we go along. But as we started talking, we began to think that we ought to narrow the focus not to the economic harms that most people, I think, associate with these big platforms, and these days especially with Amazon, because that's the focus of a lot of interest right now, right? The FTC, the Justice Department, state attorney generals, the European Commission, all of these groups now have lodged antitrust lawsuits. But the way that antitrust law has developed, especially here, but also in Europe as well, makes it a remedy for essentially economic harms. That is to say, when you 
use your monopoly power to exclude rivals, when you buy up potential startups that may challenge your dominance further down the road. These are the kinds of issues that antitrust law is dealing with. They are serious, but a lot of people are, I mean, literally thousands of lawyers around the world are looking at that. What we felt was more important was actually the political harms, or not more important, but the ones that we wanted to focus on were the political harms to democratic practice that a large-scale platform posed. And in particular, it seemed to us that what the platforms have by virtue of their large scale is the ability to amplify or to silence. Now, under First Amendment law in the United States, the First Amendment only applies to the government. So it's only the government that is prohibited from, from limiting speech, except in cases of promoting violence or criminal activity and so forth. But private parties like these platforms actually have their speech rights protected by that by that same amendment. But it seems it seemed to us that when you reach a certain scale, you actually play a much bigger role in in speech than you know the kind of marketplace of ideas notion of the First Amendment really suggests. And so when Twitter, for example, decides to deplatform Donald Trump, that has really big consequences. And so even though they are a private organization and in theory have a First Amendment right to to do what they want, the political effect is very large. In my personal case, I'm actually glad they did it because I think that he was advocating some pretty bad things, including using that platform to advocate uh, violence and, and so forth. We can disagree on whether that was the case, but I didn't have any problem with his not having access to that. What I was really shocked by was how effective that silencing was. We don't hear from him anymore because he's not on Twitter. And it seemed to me and to many other people that that kind of power is a problem in a democracy. When a private company whose purpose is to make money for its owners has that kind of political power, that's that's in itself a very problematic, and it's not a sustainable outcome for any uh, democratic society. And so that was really what became our focus, was this kind of outsized power over political discourse. That This is not a, a, an alien view in antitrust law. It's just that it hasn't been seriously put forward for at least 100 years. Louis Brandeis thought that yeah. the purpose of the antitrust laws was to make business small. Uh, and and there were people on the Supreme Court to, who just said the little guy should always win. So that's a deep-seated but rather old view of how antitrust law ought to work. Well, that's right. There's a bit of history to this. Beginning in the 70s and 80s, you had the rise of the Chicago School uh, of Economics, and then people like Robert Bork, who wrote probably the most influential book on antitrust called The Antitrust Paradox in that period. And what those free market economists said is essentially, don't worry about scale, that the reason these companies are getting large is that they're much more efficient than everybody else. The only standard uh, for measuring an antitrust violation should be a reduction of consumer welfare. And so when you get to a company like Google or Facebook that gives away their main product for free, it's very hard using that definition of economic harm to say that they're doing uh, anything wrong. And I think 
the problem with American antitrust law it's, is that it's been trapped in this Chicago school understanding of how to measure violations and what the focus of antitrust law should be. But you're right. There is this older Brandeisian tradition that says that the, the Sherman Act was also meant to correct outsized uh, political power by these big economic actors. So I'm not convinced that this is the fault of the Chicago school. When you're giving away a product uh, and you continue to give it away, it's hard to say there's classic financial consumer welfare harm. But if Twitter decides they're giving away their product uh, and they're still making a lot of money on advertising because they dominate this weird niche uh, and they're going to take that profit in virtue signaling and moral smugness by suppressing certain consumers, that is a consumer harm that I think should be every bit as cognizable as charging certain undesirable customers more money than others. So I'm not sure it's that you couldn't make some of the arguments that you make consistent with the Chicago school, but really this is not antitrust except in the sense that historically we've used the antitrust laws to cut these companies down to size when they started exercising more political authority than we were comfortable with. No, that's right. I think that if what you're worried about is the outsized control of the big platforms over political speech, none of the current antitrust initiatives is actually going to do very much to affect that, short of actually breaking up uh, Facebook and Google the way that AT&T was broken up many decades ago. And the lesson of that is that, that like the Terminator, they will reassemble themselves if that's what the economy calls for. Yeah, I think there's a consensus that's really not realistic. First of all, it took 10 years to get there, and they can do a lot of harm in the meantime. And the other thing is, just as you said, because of network efficiencies, baby Facebook that emerges from a breakup of the current Facebook will probably grow very rapidly to take the parents' position. And so you would spend all of this time and effort and you wouldn't get the result that you wanted. So I think that remedy is not really going to help. The other things that they're talking about are, for example, much greater scrutiny of the acquisition of small startups that may come to challenge uh, these companies later. That doesn't deal with the, the political issue, vertical tying. I mean, there's a lot of technical antitrust violations that, again, have economic consequences. Amazon, for example, sells on the same marketplace that it, it hosts, and there's conflicts of interest there. But that doesn't get to the political problems that that we see. So this is the general reason why we just didn't feel that antitrust law was the right instrument to deal with our particular problem. So what's interesting about this is it is a critique of the platforms that Elizabeth Warren and Tom Cotton both could, at least in theory, embrace. (laughs) uh, And it makes me wonder whether there's somebody on your group who actually has Trump leanings or whether this is whether we're just hearing from the Elizabeth Warren side of the I don't think that any anybody in our group is particularly sympathetic to Trump. I do however think that one of the conclusions that I came to in thinking this through is that actually there is a, a free speech problem. So technically the first amendment protects the right of these platforms to make these decisions. But I think that when they grow to a scale that they're at right now, they have such control 
over the nature of speech that in effect they are performing a public function. Uh, they're basically the hosts of you know public discussion and therefore they really deserve a much greater uh, degree of scrutiny because they are profit-making private companies. They are not put on earth to guard the safe, the public interest of a thriving democracy. They have much narrower purposes. That's really the thing we need to get at. The other important conclusion is one where I do break from some of the, the people that are pursuing this whole issue of content curation, because I do think that there are a lot of people in the United States that would actually like to use the platforms to get rid of hate speech and conspiracy theories and all the other garbage that's been polluting our political discourse. And again, this is this is an aim that I think is good. I think there's way too much of that stuff right now that's that's really confusing the minds of a lot of Americans. But we do have a First Amendment, and the way we've interpreted that First Amendment is that you can say false things, you can promote conspiracy theories, and the government should not be in a position of telling you that you can't do that, nor should a private company that exercises government-like powers have the right uh, to do that. And so I think that really the task is not to eliminate that kind of content from the internet. And look, in any case, you can't eliminate it. I think technologically, the idea that you can stamp out conspiracy theories is hopeless because the technology will always give people that believe in this stuff the ability to move to different platforms. And you've seen examples of this where once the Proud Boys and some of these alt-right groups get kicked off of Facebook and Twitter, they go to Parler and, or they move from 4chan to 8chan to all sorts of now encrypted platforms like Signal or Telegram. And so it's just very difficult to really prevent people from speaking. But I just think that we've always had extremists, that we've always had conspiracy nuts that have promoted this stuff. The objective of public policy shouldn't be to silence them. It should be to make sure that they're actually in the niche that they represent in the broader American society and that there's no artificial amplification of those messages so that they get out into you know, the broader public discussion in ways that are disproportionate to the actual numbers of people that believe this stuff in in our democracy. Was, I was struck by the report's faith that if we let people talk, in the end, it will work out. A, and that is maybe the real bias in the group is that you're probably all over 50 and that's the world you grew up in. A, whether that's true, I think there's room for argument. I do want to point out that there's a challenge here under the First Amendment, but maybe not as big as everybody says. Yes, these companies have First Amendment rights of their own, but the Supreme Court has spoken out of both sides of its mouth on what to do when somebody who has First Amendment rights uses those rights to prevent many other people from expressing their views freely. And the court has recognized that sometimes when you're weighing the First Amendment impact of a government action, you need to ask, well, what about the people that this person who's claiming First Amendment rights has suppressed? And we, we're going to give more room to the government to take action to ensure that a variety of voices are heard, notwithstanding 
the views of a few who happen to own the printing presses. That's they, they haven't been consistent about that, but there's enough talk like that that we probably shouldn't be deterred by the First Amendment from playing with solutions. Oh, yeah. No, that, I think that's absolutely correct. I think the government uh, can and does regulate speech in all sorts of ways. In the report, I think we mentioned this uh, Red Lion case in the 1960s, yeah. where basically what had happened was there was a conservative radio show that was spouting a lot of conspiracy theories. And there was at that time something called the Fairness Doctrine, which would require uh, broadcast media to present different sides of a controversial political issue. And so the FCC wanted to do this, and this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And it was challenged on First Amendment grounds that the FCC shouldn't be able to exercise this kind of power, but the court actually upheld its ability to do that based on its mandate to support public interest. And yelling fire in a crowded theater, there's lots of things that, that the government actually uh, regulates in terms of speech. Uh, you can't broadcast hardcore pornography on over-the-air television and, and things of that sort. So I think that that's, that's the case in Europe, where they are much less absolutist about speech rights. Governments regulate like crazy in the interest of what they call fair and balanced political coverage. But you know, the reason that we didn't pursue this in our group is just a matter of political realism. I think that the country is so polarized right now that getting any agreement between the Tom Cottons and Liz Warrens as to what fair and balanced means is just impossible. Right. I so, cannot imagine the FCC coming up with uh, a fairness doctrine in the year 2021. And I think that's really the reason that we didn't pursue that. So instead you you pursued, and this, I think this is something we, we should spend a little time on uh, uh, to, to finish up. You propose a solution that sounds to me as though it's a kind of social media version of open source and some of the remedies that were proposed against Microsoft by Netscape. It's to say you get to control a lot of this stuff, but we're going to open up the market for curation of news for right. suppression of content uh, so that I can go to Facebook and say, I'm really glad you've assembled all of my family and friends, but I do not want you curating my news or even my the comments of my friends and family. I want Stuart Baker to do it. Right. No, that's the idea. We call this middleware in the sense that this is software that sits between the platform and the user, and it does act like a filter. Now, there are many different versions of this. Some would basically take over the entire user interface and serve you up exactly. You'd be able to set the, the, the dials and knobs as to exactly the kind of content you wanted, and it would be the user interface. Uh, a much lighter version would be something like what Twitter was doing in putting little check marks and notes next to tweets that it found uh, non-credible. There is actually an existing startup called NewsGuard that provides this kind of service as a browser add-on. Yeah, they, they, do, give me, they give me little checks when I search for news on a particular thing. They'll give me green checks and red marks telling me how credible they think the particular source is. And there, there, there's some bias in how they do it that I'm aware of, but it is 
valuable. Feedly, for that matter, is allows me to say this is the these are the news topics I want to see. Or Instapundit is a essentially it's a news editor for conservatives in which they pluck news stories out. It's a kind of thinking man's Drudge Report from the days when Drudge Report was Drudge, and they. Do some of that. There was also a, a startup that failed, I think, that would allow you to mark up any website you wanted. And the trick was that the only people who would see the markup were people who had signed up for your markups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you could you could contradict people that you thought were wrong, and folks who were, were like-minded would see your contradictions along with the the story. So there's stuff like this out there, but they've never had enough support and made enough money from advertising the way the big platforms have to compete with them in any significant way. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem, there was this company about 10 years ago called Power Ventures that sought to insert itself as a middleware provider between Facebook and its users. And in fact, it would take feeds from different social media platforms and combine them. And basically, Facebook sued them out of existence. It said that it owned that content, that they were violating their uh, copyrights and so forth. And so they went bankrupt. And that served also as a powerful uh, deterrent. And these are some of the reasons why I think that you couldn't create a healthy, vibrant middleware sector, a competitive middleware sector, without some degree of regulation. You would have to change the law under which Facebook successfully sued Power Ventures to make it more difficult. You'd have to, I think, force the platforms. My vision of how this would work, just like when you buy a new computer, it asks you what browser do you want to have as your default browser. What I would like to see is when you start on a social media platform, it will give you a choice of filters. And they themselves could offer the filter. You could say Facebook or Google could offer curation services if you wanted, but it shouldn't give them automatic preference. And it should allow you to say, well, yeah, I am a conservative and I really don't like the New York Times and I want to see other news sources or vice versa. Or it could be non-political. I mean, in terms of the credibility of news sites, you could imagine a NGO created by American colleges and universities that would do something like what NewsGuard did, but with regard to more academic sources of information so that students and faculty would have some guidance as to what's out there that they ought to be relying on when they do research. So there's all sorts of ways, I think, that this could actually give people more choice and take it away from those AI algorithms that are currently feeding people stuff in ways that they have no you know, understanding of. So this works, you create a market if being chosen by a large number of people to be their news curator or their content curator makes you money. And the way to make money in these platforms is to have a piece of the advertising pie, which means you kind of have to have control of some of the data about your users. And that starts to strike really at the heart of the money machine that is at least Google and Facebook's source of revenue. You bet. Uh, So on the one hand, I think the platforms would like to not have the responsibility of curating political content because it just gets them in trouble. Jack right. Dorsey has said this on If they could keep the money and, and, and shuck the, uh, the tourists, they'd, they'd do yeah. it in a heartbeat. Yeah. 
On the other hand, as you just said, if you take away from them their ability to do targeted advertising based on their knowledge of their users or prevent them from from making use of that kind of data, it is going to affect their bottom lines. And so I suspect that they would resist this kind of shift quite quite intensely, which means, again, that I, I think you probably can't do this without some kind of legislative support that essentially forces them to open up their APIs to a middleware provider and defines exactly you know, what degree of intervention would be, would be feasible. So our group is continuing its work and we're trying to develop a, a model for how this might actually become a viable commercial product. The other thing that legislation could do is actually just to force the platforms to share some of their ad revenue with these companies or to tax them in certain ways and use that money to support kind of an independent layer of uh, middleware providers. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea and a technically demanding and you really have to understand the the ad market and the structure of the the companies that are making so much money off of this, but it is the one truly dramatic change in the way they interact with Americans that might get support on both sides of the aisle. There's support for things like transparency, but things like transparency are necessary, but not really likely to to change anything. And so uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten from left and right? Well, I think the overwhelming criticism we get is that people will say, well, if you create this competitive middleware sector, aren't some of these middleware companies going to cater to all these right-wingers and create filter bubbles that will simply reinforce the existing polarizations and animosities and so forth? And my answer to this is, yes, we are not proposing that we stamp out conspiracy theories, but that's not a legitimate aim of public policy. What we want to do uh, simply is to prevent them from being artificially amplified. That's really the goal of what we're doing. And so, yes, there will be a a variety of these different middleware companies. They will reflect the actual diversity of opinions that Americans hold about politics. But our goal is to prevent a big platform from raising some of them up such that they become really unrepresentative of the underlying views of the American population. That's really the the goal here. Yeah, I I, I think for many of the people on the left who think that that way, they're riding the tiger now and it feels pretty good. But sooner or later, the tiger is in control of that uh, operation. And as soon as they propose a policy that the companies truly fear, they're going to see how the power of those uh, platforms can be deployed to kill left-wing ideas just as it can be deployed to kill QAnon. I've tried to popularize the saying that you won't know how truly evil a technology is until the engineers who maintain it start to fear they're going to lose their jobs, and then they will deploy all of the evil it has. And I think that's true about platform power. They will use that because they can, and sooner or later, they will use it to shape the world in a fashion that is comfortable for big platform dominant companies, not for woke Portland rioters, or maybe for both. Uh, All right, uh, uh, Frank, uh, this was a terrific discussion, uh, and I'm sure our politics are not exactly the same, but I I 
thought it was a fascinating and admirable paper. I didn't tease you about the fact that you didn't have 40 carefully curated members of your group. It looked like an overambitious dinner party that you would actually put together like six people, but really good people. Uh, and I really hope you'll continue. I look forward to the next paper on the same topic. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. That is Francis Fukuyama, uh, and his uh, he's the co-author with several other people of the report of the Working Group on Platform Scale. And uh, I'm not going to read all his titles at Stanford, but they are many and impressive, as is his record of publication. Thanks to Professor Fukuyama, to Nate, to Dimitri, to Nick, and uh, thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 355 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Step to Johnson.